It's July 24th, about 1.50 p.m., and I'm about to leave home to hit up a coffee shop. And if you know me, I love coffee shops, far more than coffee. I love the sights, the sounds, the business. I love feeling like an interesting conversation can happen at any moment. I love seeing the baristas as coworkers. I love ordering a $6 mocha frappa kappa fucker, lifting the cap and stirring in some sugar in the raw. I love the smells, coffee, chocolate, vanilla. I'm not sure why, but it all just inspires me to create and think and even on occasion write. So for all you people so happy to work from home, look, take your quiet spaces and your isolation and keep them far away from me because I, Jeff Perlman, am a cafe guy. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Bill Bellamy, a longtime comedian, actor, former MTV super stud, and the author of a new memoir, Top Villain, Stories of Laughter, Lessons, and Triumph. This is episode number 321. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Bill. First of all, thank you so much for joining me. Despite your yes. Yankee hat that you're wearing, I appreciate you. Being ah, here. don't be mad. Your team's in last place right now, so I feel good. It's all right. You know, there's a lot of games to play. <laughs> yeah. So I'm working on this biography of Tupac Shakur, and I'm in the Baltimore Library, and I'm kind of making photocopies, and they have a book displayed, and it is Top Billing by Bill Bellamy. And I'm like, oh, Bill Bellamy. And I pick up the book. Not only does it have good Tupac material on it, but just a really interesting life story. And there was something you wrote toward the end of the book that really caught me. And it was in chapter 13. It was called Priorities. And you wrote, being famous is a crazy thing. I always knew I wanted to be a star. That seemed cool. What I eventually learned is that I didn't want or need to be Michael Jackson, Britney Spears, or Prince. Can't walk out of the house level of famous. I wanted to keep going to the movies with friends I grew up alongside with without feeling self-conscious or boxed in by it. I didn't want to become a caricature of myself like you watch some of these other celebrities become. It's like they're wearing a clown suit and don't have an identity of their own anymore. I've always wanted to be myself. And I feel like there was a point when everyone in America who listened to music, watched MTV, blah, 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 knew exactly who you were, precisely who you were. The name yeah. Bill Bellamy, you were in movies, you were in movies with Nia Long, who every guy in the age between whatever and whatever absolutely <laughs> loved. Right. And I wonder, so... Is to have that level of fame, is there a joy to it or does it more suck? I learned from the people that I was interviewing how boxed in it was, right? So like initially when I was not a celebrity yet and I'm sort of like a struggling comedian slash actor guy, I didn't know what that kind of fame was because I just could only see it on TV or whatever. But then once I got in the entertainment game and I'm meeting Michael Jackson and Madonna and, you know, uh, these big bands like, you know, um, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Aerosmith. And I'm like, damn, like Steven Tyler couldn't go to a restaurant. Right? Like, you know, it's like, damn, you know, Steven Tyler couldn't just go to the movies with his kids and have a good time. He got to have security and Mariah Carey. We go, we go to uh, uh, the Universal. Mariah got 13 security guys. The kids going crazy and she taking pictures all day. I said, damn, that's a lot, bro. And so for me, I said, okay, well, what I want to do 
is I want to be in that sweet spot where, you know, I, yeah, I'm famous. Okay, cool, cool. But people got love for me. And if I'm with my kids, I'm not going to have to run, you know, and, and dive in the, in the van, you know? <laughs> right. So that was something that I picked up on earlier in my career. And I just said, well, you know what? I want to still have fun with it. Like, I don't want to feel like, damn, man, I got all this money. You know, I'm super duper famous. But now, you know, I'm, you know, I'm dancing, you know, I'm dancing in my living room because I can't go outside. Okay, in your career, do you feel like you can tell the difference between people who fame is the payoff of being famous, like the the joy of being recognized, the joy of getting a free meal outweighs, oh, I get to be in this really cool movie. I get to make this really great song. I get to live out my dreams. Like, are you able to tell the difference between people who are just in it for the joy of fame versus the joy of the actual process? Yeah, I mean, you could tell by the choices that certain artists make, you know, this game will make you feel like you need to stay in front of it all the time. This game will make you feel like if you're not relevant, you have no purpose, you know. And I think it's excruciatingly hard for women because, you know, when they're young and they're beautiful and, you know, they they pump them up, pump them up, pump them up. Now they have a baby or they try to do something for themselves. Now they're like, oh, you know, or, you know, you're not as attractive. You know, I, I like my hat goes off to the Rihanna's and the Beyonce's that keep the pedal to the metal. You know what I'm saying? Or they diversify their their portfolio. They're not just doing concerts. They're, they're branded in different ways where they're just not reliant on music, which was smart. Right. But if you're an actress and, you know, you get married and you're the starlet, you know, if you're the, uh, you know, the Olivia Munn or if you're like uh, Megan Fox was so hot, like just incredibly hot in that summer or two. And, and then all of a sudden you just don't hear from her for six years. You know what I'm saying? Oh, my God. So then people do like Instagram or they, you know, they jump on reality shows and they do all kinds of goofy shit. Like, you know, <laughs> be like, yo, what is going on? You know, that's the thing that I think is just really hard for people to decide who are you? Are you going to chase it and that's your game or are you just going to do what you need to do? Like I, I was watching um, this thing with Gwyneth Paltrow and I was just like, that is so ill. You know what I mean? Because Gwyneth Paltrow probably has had probably one of the best careers for a female in, in Hollywood. You know, great projects, you know, um, her, her resume is dope. And she just got to a point where she was just like, I'm, I'm, I don't think I got to chase it no more. You know, and now she's, you know, a businesswoman. I was like, yo, that's some ill shit. Like most people don't, you know, you know, oh, my God, I'm still fine. You got Madonna out here with a fake booty. You know, like, oh, shit. Madonna went and got her a 32-year-old booty. She's 900 years old. Yeah. Actually, we it's funny. We talk about Madonna a lot in this house. Because <laughs> oh, we grew up with Madonna. Like, I would have never thought that Madonna would have to do that. She's she's legendary. Like, Madonna is Madonna. You know what I'm saying? Like, she don't have to do nothing. She's a boss. She is legendary. She's iconic. She broke barriers for women. All the, She checked all the boxes. And then you turn around and you see her with a BBL and she's doing stuff on the internet. And you're like, what? Because it feels like a little bit like if you were like, hey, I'm Bill Bellamy and I'm still at the MTV Beach House. Like it wouldn't it feels like at some point you have to move with your audience a little bit. No. Yeah. You know, it's saying like I knew. I mean, you probably know me pretty much mostly my career and seen mm-hmm. stuff that I've done. Right. Like I couldn't I didn't I didn't even I knew it wasn't a 10 year run for me at MTV. I didn't even want it to be. 
I felt like that was a wave, right? I felt like in order for me to to grow, I was going to need to do something else. I can't just be Kurt Loder, you know what I'm saying? Like, yo, the only thing you will ever know me for in my life is being a VJ. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm more talented than that. I got something to offer the game, right? So for me, I just utilize MTV as a springboard for acting, a springboard for, you know, producing and doing the things that I wanted to do for myself. And I... I I, I don't have any regrets. Like, I love that opportunity at that time, you know, that MTV provided me. Um, I wouldn't have been famous that fast without it. You know, I probably would have had to do some extra stuff or whatever, but they blew me up overnight. So I can't be mad at that. But I have a super random loaded question for you. There's an HBO show called Winning Time about the 80s Lakers. And yes. it's based love on. A, oh, I wrote the book that the show is based on. There's a book called Showtime. Oh. And I wrote the book. And gangster. I'm a producer on the show. Like, it's been a great gig for me, right? And right now, there's obviously dual strikes going on in Hollywood. And this show involves a ton of talented young Black actors getting their first opportunities to have a real, you know, there are HBO shows, guys out of nowhere. The guy who plays Magic, Quincy Isaiah, out of nowhere, getting to play Magic. Solomon Hughes playing Kareem, first time. And I feel like it still feels really hard for young Black actors to break out of whatever box Hollywood puts them in. And they say, you're this guy, you're this guy, you're the funny black guy, you're the serious black guy. And this strike comes along and they can't promote the show. They can't go for other opportunities. They can't ride the wave of the show. And I don't know what to tell them. What am I supposed to tell them? Well, here's the deal. It is a horrible, horrible situation for all actors and actresses because if we don't strike and we don't fight for some levity and some equality in this this platform game we're done like it's just like now we're really just getting manipulated in a way that's just ridiculous because these streamers that came out of nowhere that you know they got paid subscribers they got plenty of money that's why they've been able to produce so much television so much content but they don't want to pay the actors, right? They just want to give us a buyout and just pay you. And then there's no residuals. You don't get to contribute to your insurance and this, that, and the other and blah, blah, blah. There's so many ways that that trickles down to hurt the artist, right? Now, if you're a new artist and you're like, oh my God, I just got paid 600 grand to do this, you know, winning time series, I'm, you know, that helped me out, blah, blah, blah. You're looking for your next 600 or whatever. You're fried right now because you're like, oh my God, you know, you're new to this game. You're not thinking 20 years down the road. Right now, the OGs like me, legends in the game, we're thinking like, okay, well, where will we be in 10? Where will we be in five, right? And so the landscape of how we do entertainment has changed, right? When I came up, you was either a movie star or a TV star. You couldn't go back and forth, right? But then when the movie game got fucked up and people stopped going to movies, then we got hit with COVID and then people started doing uh, pay-per-views. Remember when you first came out, it would only be in the theaters and it would take like three or four months before it hit cable. Man, that shit is on cable the next day, right? <laughs> So so now we're releasing movies on Netflix. We're releasing movies on um, Apple Plus and all this shit. And so now the game has changed. So we got to we have to adjust the game to the climate. Like, you know, protection for the artist has to be adjusted. What the unilateral consensus is for what we will get paid residual wise has to be agreed upon. Right. It's a, it's a setback to get back to me. 
right now it's a setback if you brand new like right now you know it's a setback for me i got a new movie coming out august uh back back on the strip we've been waiting can't we can't promote the damn movie right uh, i got I mean, it all right i mean i don't know it's just fuck that bro so but i'm still you know i still think what we're doing is right i still think that where the union is is definitely doing in the right direction but does it cramp your style a little bit it's like being hungry <laughs> you can't you're fasting right now <laughs> this season coming up focuses a lot on, on the bird magic robbery and the guy who plays bird is this guy sean small he's unknown he's awesome he's great they were really going to market a lot of season two around this guy and he's a he's a young guy with a baby who moved out here the whole thing and he can't do a thing he can't market it he can't do pr he can't go on the tour that nothing and it actually breaks my heart for these people. It just breaks my heart. Yeah, man. It's it's it's. Hopefully, we can come to a resolution sooner than later. I don't think we need to drag it out. I just think we need to know what we want, and they need to, you know, be very diligent about it. Because now you got that influx of AI. How are they gonna use that? You know, then they start duplicating your voice and doing all kinds of goofy shit. Like now, intellectual properties. Like that's a very important part of the game right now. You know what I mean? Your voice, your image, your likeness. Oh, man, it's it's just it's it almost feels like they opened up Pandora's box with the internet. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And, and we just keep discovering holes that we didn't think of 20 years ago. You know what I'm saying? hundred percent. All right. You wrote in your book, page nine of top bill. And you wrote, my pops always had like two or three jobs going on at the same time. He taught me how to maneuver and juggle my skills to make money doing whatever I could. And I, I do want to say you grew up in Newark, New Jersey. When I was in high yes. school, I'd have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to help him clean the bank where he had his side gig. We'd scrub all the toilets, vacuum and wax all the floors to get to the place ready for opening time. Mind you, after that, I still had to go to school and put in a full day of learning. Sometimes we switched it up and cleaned houses as well. My mom and I would do a little hustle on the weekends and take on extra housekeeping jobs. I also learned to transition my expert cleaning skills into detailing cars. Hard work and even more work was one of the key lessons of my youth. That's what I saw and learned to do. And I really love that. And I do wonder, how does waking up at four o'clock to help your dad clean a bank, to scrub toilets, et cetera, what is the long-term impact of that on sort of what you became in the course of your career? What I think I learned from my dad and my mom was that if you want something, you got to do something. You know what I mean? You're, you're not going to, um, no one's going to hand it to you. No one's going to come and just give you, you know, this amazing job or this opportunity. I believe little opportunities could create bigger opportunities. And so, you know, I didn't want to get up at four in the morning. <laughs> I'm in the eighth, ninth grade. I'm like, Jesus Christ. But, but I was working with my parents. So, you know, I would help my dad, you know, and we would, you know, knock it out really fast and do what we need to do. And I had to go to bed a little earlier because I had to get up earlier. And that was a part of my parents' hustle, being able to um, put me in a private school, you know, to have extra money to be able to afford for me to go to a better school. So that was my contribution to my own education, which, you know, which I'm grateful for. Right. But I love that, that, that journey. You know what I'm saying? I would like, you know, my kids to know, and I preach to my children, like daddy works hard. Like, you know, you got to take it. No one's going to come and just give you anything. You got to have a vision you got to be willing to, you know, suffer a little bit. You got to be, you know, there's got to be, oh, you got to work an extra hour or two. Uh, you got to do some more research. You got to, you know, my son's an athlete. Like you got to, you got to practice more. 
you got to outwork somebody. Somebody's working harder than you. So in your mind, you got to be outworking the person that you think is outworking you. So now you're not taking no days off. You you know, you're like staying focused. And um, it, it, that bleeds into your life. It bleeds into your discipline for your to your success, in my opinion. Wait, so do you feel like being that kid, eighth grader, cleaning toilets at a bank, four in the morning with your dad, is that the work ethic moment or moments where you're like, oh, you really have to push for this? It was twofold, right? One, I never wanted to do that shit again. Like, I was like, okay, I'm doing this right now. And I just know this ain't my life, but it is right this second. But I'm, it's something coming out of this. And on top of that, it made me appreciate every person that does stuff like that that we don't see. Like, I never look down on anybody that's, you know, a housekeeper, anybody that's, you know, um, a minority worker or whatever it is, it, you know, because that's America, right? America is about that hustle, right? And we all had to come from the bottom to get somewhere. And like when I see, you know, families sometimes cleaning banks at night and I see them in there, I remember that it used to be me. You know, people don't even think of that shit. You know, they just think the bank, the bank is beautiful. They just think the floor stays shiny. Somebody's doing it <laughs> yeah. in these commercial, you know, these commercial buildings and things of that nature. So for me, you know, I, I always have compassion and I'm just like still grateful too. like, I, I just go, man, that was me. You're like I did it. You know, I made it. I saw my vision while I was cleaning the floor. I saw a vision of myself, you know, when I was cleaning the bathroom that was bigger than where I was at that moment. Don't you also find that it um, when you see people who have succeeded treating people, cleaning the bank floor or cleaning a house or whatever, when they treat those people like shit, to me, it's the number one character indictment in the world. Oh, God, I, I hate that, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I hate when people treat your waiter like trash or like, you know, or, 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 or whatever it is, you know, your gardener or whoever, you know, we all are important in this game. You know, people are human. People may not be where you are, X, Y, Z, to Z, but they're doing something like I was doing construction, right? My boy Max brought his son. Max is the dopest contractor, like lead contractor dude. He got a squad that's crazy of electricians, dudes that do stone. He's teaching his son. I said, that's so gangster. His son's like 13, 14. He got his son rolling with him. His son is getting the game. His son is learning how to, you know, do PVC pipe. His son is learning the intricate part of this business. I said, that's some gay. That was my dad. You know, that was my dad bringing me along, learning, teaching you this. You can, you can cut a corner here. You can do this like that. And this tradition, you know, that, you know, we can put into our children. It's, it's not hard. It's not a bad thing to teach your kids how to work, bro. <laughs> also, it's weird, isn't it? That like that guy. So your friend, Max's dad, his yeah. skill is no less impressive. In fact, I'd argue more impressive than George Clooney being able to pretend he's so-and-so, yet we value one thing so much more than something else. It's really- yeah. But you can't, you can't, you still need a house, George Clooney. Bill Bellamy still need a house, right? Yeah. But I can't do it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you wrote, so again, you end up going to Rutgers, but you um, you went to you went to private school and you wrote a little about this, but I am fascinated. So I have a kid, he spent two years in high school, public school, was had some struggles, is going to private school. And he's a white Jewish kid in California, okay? And he okay. he hates telling people he goes to private, which is actually embarrassed to tell people he goes to private school. He does not. <sighs> and you are a black kid from Newark going yeah. to a private school. Yeah. 
I feel like I read it in the book a little, but you didn't delve super into it. There has to be some weight that comes with being that kid from Newark. Your friends are all going to public school and you're going to private school. It was the worst. (laughs) It was the worst, right? Because my friends treated me like I was a traitor. Like they treated me like, you know, oh, so you better than us now. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't necessarily my choice. It was my parents' choice. My parents didn't like the school, didn't like how it was run. And it was just not up to par. They didn't have the right books and this, that, and the other. And then my parents was like, well, you know what? We're not going to that school. No. And my parents put me in an all boys school, which was even worse because I was just like, where the chicks at? You know what I'm saying? Like, I got to go to school with all these knuckleheads and blah, 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 blah. But it ended up being a great, great opportunity because I had Polish friends, Jewish friends, Italian friends. Um, I was meeting people from different parts of the country. I was meeting people that were very, they they were just learning English, you know? And I was like, damn, man, it was like a melting pot of different families, right? So it was actually a good thing. But from my neighborhood, I used to take my tie off, bro. I used to take my, I used to put my shit in my book bag. I'm took my, I took my, uh, uh, my little blazer off with the symbol. I'm, I was looking like a prep school kid. I was like, oh Jesus. So I understand what your, what your kid is feeling, but you doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah, he hates it. He hates us. He'll thank you later. He'll yeah. thank you later. It's all right. It's all right. Yeah. Suck it up for now. He'll be like, Dad, thanks, man. My bad. Exactly. <laughs> Wait, so you go to Rutgers and you kind of have a career and you, you, you're you not sure what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward a little bit. You come up with sort of a moment of pure genius, which is the entire booty call movement. And it's funny because when I say that, I ask that question, it came out of my mouth and I feel like it, I'm in some sort of spoof where it's like, and then the booty call movement took over. But literally, am I exaggerating by saying the two words booty call changes the trajectory of your life and career? Career. Because it was, it, it, and I, how, who would think something that simple and that funny would work, right? And it was just so funny because it's easy to say. It's, even now, booty call, like you're like, oh, man, dude, I had a booty call when I was a junior in high school that was so amazing. Like, it's just such a funny, cute way to say what you're doing, right? And so when I, when I was thinking of the joke at the time, I just felt that it was a funny word. I was just like, booty. Because booty is funny. Like, booty don't offend anybody. Booty, like, booty, 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 shaking everywhere. Like, people have been saying booty. But but when you need some booty, you got to make a booty call, right? And so when I wrote the joke at the time, I was just like, it was killing in the club. Like, every time I say it, people were like, oh, oh, right? But I knew, I knew, I knew I had something. I, I just didn't know 30 years later it would be like that. Do you, when, when you come up with something like that and it takes a hold like it did, where people are literally still, my kid wouldn't know what a booty call is because Bill Bellamy walks the earth. Like, is there then a need to leave it behind a little bit for fear of becoming the booty call guy and being a guy who's doing no, I don't mind. I don't think it's, it, it, it does. I have too much going on to have that be the one thing that people, no, it's just, I think it's just one of the things that's in my chapters in my life that, you know, when you, when you are a creative person to create a phrase that people say, it's like, it came from my mind. Like, how dope is that? Like, you know, it's like that people say it now, like, it's like regular, like they don't even know. Like if you 22 years old, you think you been, you just know that word, you know that word because I said it 25 years ago. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
So yeah. it's it's it it's actually kind of cool, you know what I'm saying? It, it's like people say three P. We want to we want to do a three P. You know, Pat Riley did that. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, so. Wait. So you wrote in your book. You wrote, uh, "Where did this booty call concept come from?" It came out of two situations I witnessed playing out in pop culture and across the front page of newspapers. I conjured up the idea during a time of controversy for the boxer Mike Tyson. Um, yeah. Found himself convicted of sexually assaulting a young lady he invited to his hotel room late one night. Not that there was any humor in the situation, but there were thoughtful questions that surfaced. Concerns about making sure women don't leave themselves vulnerable or in harm's way during certain situations. All right. I'm really fascinated by this. First of all, I do want to say your stand-up is great. Like, not just like, <laughs> great. it's great. You are a great stand-up comedian. Like, funny as shit. whole thing. Is it? Is there a line as a stand-up, as a comedian, as a performer? Like, Mike Tyson is accused of rape. You find right. something funny out of that, which is there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there is. Is there a line you have to walk as a comedian to be careful? You know, whatever. Rape, booty call, booty call rape. Or as a comedian, are you just like, fuck it. This is funny. I'm going to find a way to make this funny. Yeah, it's it's twofold. Like, you still got to say, fuck it. And this is funny. But you got to have the, the the angle, though. So my point wasn't about the, the assault. My point was. The girl said, I don't know why he asked me to come to his room at three in the morning. And I was like, you miss America. What you. Are you are you serious? And Mike Tyson's one of the most famous dudes in the country at this time. He comes to the pageant. You are the finest thing in Indianapolis. Do you understand? Three in the morning ain't too much going on, but some booty. Right. So. <laughs> so when I. <laughs> When I thought of it like that, I was like, yo, it was a booty call. And and that's really where it came from. And I literally was playing it out in my mind. And I was like, man, that's a booty call. Wow, what, what you mean? She was like, he called me to, my, to his room. And I was like, I don't know why I'm going. Oh, are you crazy? That's Mike Tyson. You are fine as hell. Woo. What we doing? Monopoly? Come on now, stop. I'm working on this Tupac book. And um, he actually, you know, as you know, Tupac went to prison for allegedly raping a woman. Correct. And the night before, she gave him a blowjob in nails. On the dance floor. On the dance floor. You know how many times I went to nails thinking that was going to happen to me? Never happened. I can tell you as a sports writer, it literally never happens. At least you have fame on your side. No one's giving sports. Right, right, right. It never happened. I was like, because I used to run into um, Pac a lot of times at Nails because it was such a big deal back then. It was such a, it was the vibe. It was literally the vibe in New York, right? And I'm like, what? Because I remember saying, Tupac, that famous, damn. I remember yeah. saying that, damn, he at that level? In in front of people? In front of people. Man, that's, that's, I got to get my weight up. I'm not that famous. <laughs> I feel like uh, I was, I was, I was doing well if a woman would actually accept the drink I was buying her. You know, that was, <laughs> Thank that you. We, me. you know, we get into other stuff, you know. Oh my God, I would love to go out with you again. Thank you. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, really? Um, wait, Thank so you, you get to MTV and you write a lot about your time at MTV. And I was thinking, I had this conversation somewhat recently with Chuck D from Public Enemy, where I said, mm -hmm. I'm sure it wasn't your goal. And I know it wasn't his goal, but listening to Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos listening to Fight the Power, listening to a million different public enemy songs as a white kid growing up in a small white town in upstate New York was an education for me that I was not getting in my school, you know, where I was surrounded Correct. no black kids. And I feel like sincerely seeing Bill Bellamy on MTV 
hearing Bill Bellamy talk, not hearing Bill Bellamy talk in a buttoned up way, hearing Bill Bellamy talk about black music, interviewing black artists was also an education for a shitload of white kids whose parents were not allowing them to date black girls who weren't allowed to live with black music. You wouldn't listen to black. I mean, and I wonder at the time when you were going through it, when you were on MTV, when you were in a white universe that MTV really was at the time and still shunned black music, if you were aware of the impact you could potentially be having. I was aware of it at the time because, and that's why I made it my purpose to do a really good job, right? Because I knew that what the opportunity I had was groundbreaking because you got to understand at that time, MTV was really not necessarily playing a lot of black music. They were playing like it was handpicked, you know, it was like very much curated, right? But so when I came on MTV, we got top 40 R&B pop, you know, they they start opening up the can a little bit, right? So now you're getting exposed to top 40 R&B, top 40 hip hop, top 40 rock, all in one big pie, right? So now I'm introducing music to people that wouldn't necessarily know who I am, probably never had a black kid in their class, never met a black guy cool like me, never um, really thought they would like Coolio or whoever, Ace of Base, right? And so now the music is the connector. So people don't even realize that they're getting introduced to diversity in culture and music at the same time without it being beat in the head, right? So you'd watch me and be like, yo, man, Bill Bellamy, cool as hell. Like, we need some black dudes in my neighborhood like that. Like, I never went to class with a guy like Bill Bell. My mom told me black dudes are crazy. Like, okay, cool. I go to spring break. I'm meeting 95% white kids from sub- suburban areas, right? And they're like, all oh, like Bill Bellamy, you're cool as hell. You're my guy, man. Like, I watch you every single day. So I was literally like a lot of people's first, right? And that was cool. I think that was a really good thing. And then also, too, it's like, uh, my hat goes off the MTV for just being courageous enough to open the door. Look at all the different artists that got created. Look how many people became successful because they had a, a platform to showcase their talent, like Destiny's Child. Like They wouldn't have been on MTV 15 years before that. Then you had groups like, you know, uh, Nirvana. Then you have, you know, Alanis Morissette, you know, like this, like, all these cool, eclectic people. Dude, we had Terrence Trent Darby from the UK. He was huge. He was like the first Lenny Kravitz. People don't even remember him. Then you I got think. somebody like Nas from Queens that was just like an underground, legendary New York rapper. Blow up. Nas, I Am Nas, the first album was crazy. You know, it's funny. Nas just put out last year, he put out King's Disease 3, which is um, a great. uh, Nas to me is the greatest hip hop artist of all time. And I feel like he does not get the respect he deserves. I don't know why they keep skipping over him. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I'm looking at the credit card bill. Did you use my visa to buy a 55 inch television? I did. Why would you do that without asking? I thought it would be a nice surprise. Now we can hang out on the couch and watch the Philadelphia Stars and Michigan Panthers play in the first ever USFL championship game. Casey, that was 40 years ago. Oh, I just realized all this talk about RoyalRetros.com and throwback jerseys and hats and t-shirts isn't an in the now thing. 
So Chuck Fusina isn't starting at QB tonight? You just wanted a TV, didn't you? Wait, so um, one of my favorite parts of your book, I have to say, and I was laughing out loud, was um, you have this great transition to movies. But then you write about being in any given Sunday. And I feel vindicated by what you wrote because I was like, wait a second, Bill Bellamy was in any given Sunday. I don't remember Bill Bellamy in any given Sunday. And don't hate me, but you write in the book about how like you're in this movie and you're thrilled and it's going to be big and blah, blah, blah. And then they just cut, 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 cut 80% of your scenes out of any given Sunday. What is that like to have a, that, to go through It that? was heartbreak. It was my first heartbreaking thing because I spent all these months on this movie set, worked on this movie, busted my ass, and then, you know, come to, the movie was three hours long, so everybody's storyline couldn't get flushed out. And so, you know, I was in the movie still, but it was just the way, you know, my storyline about being this dynamic, you know, sort of primetime Deion Sanders kind of guy to having this drug problem on painkillers and things like this. And the doctors refuse to give me any more drugs. Like when I say in the movie, I'm the greatest receiver of all time. You don't know the reference to why I'm saying that. You're saying that. I was saying that because I had to psych myself up that I could do this on my own without the drugs. And it was not easy. And I had to keep, you know, locking in on I am, I am, I am, because I just was leaning on that shit for so long for the pain. But people didn't know that. You wrote in the book, I just want to say, you said, if I didn't admit my disappointment and how this went down, I'd be lying to you and myself. I was pissed, but there was nobody to blame, nobody to be pissed at. It was just how the business of filmmaking operated. My team was as shocked as I was because they knew the kind of work I put in. Oliver Stone wrote me a personal letter and thanked me for bringing such raw emotion to the film. He shared that some of my biggest scenes had to be edited to keep the length tight. That was a nice touch because I know he wasn't obligated to explain shit to me. Lesson learned. Is that your biggest disappointment in Hollywood? One of them. I think so, because I was selected by Oliver Stone for that role. And it was me, Jamie and LL Cool J. And basically the way he explains to me what he wanted to accomplish with that character, Jimmy Sanderson, was I, I was like, I can do that. Like, I know that guy. I know I can do it. And I did. Like, I, you know, got my acting coach. We worked on the beats. We worked on, you know, character development on who Jimmy was and this, that, and the other. And I came in with it. I came with it with my A game. And so you're thinking big studio movie, $80 million, five-star director, you know, Cameron Diaz, Jamie, L, Matthew Modine, you know, James Woods. Like, it's loaded. It's, it's loaded. Jim Brown, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, it just was one of those things that made me realize, like, you know, sometimes you don't always get what you think you're going to get. You know, you still got to work, though. You don't give up. But it definitely, man, hurt. It hurt to go to the premiere and see those scenes. I have the scenes. If I showed them to you, you'd be like, damn, why he cut that? Oh, because it just adds so much more to my character. So now you know, but whatever. All right, so in the upcoming season of Winning Time, I got to play a reporter in uh, one of the episodes, right? And I went for the day, and I was super psyched, right? They shot the scene, I would say, 90 times. I got there at 9 in the morning. I left at 9 at night. The next day, I had an allerg allergic reaction to the glue used on my wig. Had to go to urgent care because my head blew up. So the whole thing, right? It took 9 hours over and over, and I was so bored. 
I was generally bored. I did not find it fun. I found it boring. You've been in a lot of movies. Is it fun or is it long and boring? No, it's still fun, but it's 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 tedious. Like people think when you get there, you just immediately start working. No, it's it's, it's, it's hurry up. We call it hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait, right? They hurry you, get you a, get you there, get you a makeup, get all that stuff, and then you sit around waiting for your scenes. You know what I mean? So it kind of takes some of the like, oh my god, I'm in a movie, I'm doing a TV show. But once you see it, you're like, what? Like nobody's gonna know your your head blew up. They're gonna be like, dog, I seen you, man. You look real. You look like the '80s, right? So you have a you have a comedy special. I want my life back on, on Amazon Prime. It's really funny. You have a routine about being a kid and watch, you know, watch, like watch, uh, watch, watch, yeah. watch, you know, basically, which is, the, you know, which we all went through as a kid, you know, watch when I have this, watch when I have that. Watch when I get rich. <laughs> when you sit down or however you go about writing a routine, how much of it is actually based on a literal real life experience that you can draw upon and how much of it is based upon sort of imaginary things that you think would be funny, blah, 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 blah. Like, how do you decide what is funny and what will be funny when I actually speak out loud about it? I think the most funny jokes or experiences come from a real place. So if I'm talking about my kids or if I'm talking about being married or if I'm talking about guys being side chicks, right? Like when I take a topic that I know is in the conscience of the culture and I flip it to me, that's genius because it's like stuff that we probably, you think about it, you thought about it and then put no heat on it. But then when I say it, you're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking. You know what I mean? Like when I do this joke about how kids stay on their devices, like they lifeline, their phone is like their life. Like they can't go a whole day without, you know what I'm saying? Like we could go all day. You and I, we was outside all day. We didn't need no phone. We was good, right? Our kids can't do that. If our kids don't have their phone, they feel like they're in a third world country or something. Right. Do you as a comedian have to adjust to your own age? What I mean is, can you, in your 50s, still do jokes related to like a booty car? I saw this hot chick or blah, blah, blah. Or do you have to adjust to sort of your own place in life? I think you adjust to your own place in life. And then I think also, too, you can have perspectives on things, too, because, you know, you don't have to go through everything to have a funny take on it. Because I read a lot and there's so many weird things going on that I'm like, oh, my God, I could use that. That's funny as hell. That's funny as hell. And I just write a bunch of shit in my journal. I, I put notes in my phone so I don't forget it. Like I'm, I say it the way I'm thinking it in my phone. So when I listen to it, I go, oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. And then I can write it out, you know. Do you have moments where you think something is hilariously funny? You do it on stage and just nobody feels it? Or you have something that's funny, but you miss a word or you ain't set it up right. How do you mean? Because sometimes like a joke, a joke has to be set set first. Like you got to set it up. You got to bring them into the world and then take them where you want them to go. And sometimes if you're not clear or if you miss a word or you say the thing backwards, it, it doesn't, it, the line is broken. Like, it's just like, it doesn't go one, two, three. You might go one, three, two. It's like, oh, shit. Comedians know what I mean. You'd be like, ah, I said it wrong. I missed this word. I should have said this description and I didn't sell it right. Ah. If you're performing, does that happen as you're performing where you're like, fuck, I just screwed up? Oh, you know. You, you know, know it because it'll be a dead spot. 
it'll just be a dead spot. It'll just be like a little dead spot in your set. It'll be like, ha ha. We we got a rule with comedians that the crowd don't lie. You know when you're cooking, you can hear it. Can you tell at the beginning of a show when it's not going to go well? No, you can't tell that. You can't tell that you're not going to have a good set. You can you can feel it. You're not having a good set because they're not connecting with you. That could happen. You know, it could be like, oh, man, this crowd was weird or I was in a weird place because it's all energy. So if you're not if you're not connected to your audience and you don't read your audience, you won't, you might have a tough night. <laughs> Let me ask you a final question. I am fascinated by why did you decide to write a book? Wow. OK, well couple reasons one 50 years of hip-hop i am the culture i am a iconic part of hip-hop i feel like i am one of the ambassadors to that transition to pop culture where hip-hop blew up and went from the basement to the penthouse and so i felt like my stories and my life contributes not only to hip-hop but to life right and so when I had the opportunity to do a book and the way I pitched my story, they were like, dog, I forgot all the stuff you did. Like people don't realize my contribution until you read the book or you see my, you see my go on YouTube and you just see all these interviews. You'd be like, you know, Aaliyah, Kurt Cobain, what? And so when I, when I was just, you know, going over the book, I think I was like, I think I got something. I felt like I got, I got a story to tell. I think, I can make it funny. I did the audio book. So the audio book is live. Like you go, you know, you get some chuckles in there. It's not all like Morgan Freeman, you know? <laughs> so I, I just thought it was, the timing was perfect. I didn't know COVID was going to hit. So COVID was actually a blessing for me because I wasn't working on anything else. And I could, you know, commit to, you know, two hours a session you know, going over pictures, going over different thoughts and different stories that happened in my life. And I had Nicole Smith who helped me curate my 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 story and like give me, you know, the, the structure of how to write a chapter and have each chapter do do something. So it was it was really a really great experience, man. Kudos to you for writing, being a writer, because I never look at myself as an author. Like I, even when you just said that, I'm like, damn, that's kind of cool. You're an author. I always feel like authors are smart people. I'm like, man, you're an author? Man, I'll tell you something, bro. When I grow up, I'm going to be an author. <laughs> oh, there you go. You made it. All the shit you did doesn't matter. You now have a book. Right, yeah. I'm an author now. I'm good. <laughs> but man, man, I'm Jeff, you do a pretty good interview, bro. This has been one of my favorite episodes. I've done 300 episodes of this show. This is one of my favorite. You're you're like a delight. And I, I, I think the book is great. And I just genuinely appreciate you doing this. I really do. Thank you, man. And, um... Stay in touch with me, man, because uh, when you when that pop uh, book come out, I want you to sign one for me. That's oh, my guy. One hundred percent. Thank you. All right, and congrats on winning time. That shit is lit. Appreciate <laughs> oh, Congrats on the book. I want to thank today's guest, Bill Bellamy, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Ring. You can follow Bill on Instagram at Bill Bellamy and buy Top Billing Stories of Laughter, Lessons, and Triumph wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and you enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. Remember, keep writing.